Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 14th of December, Dan Hater taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Dan looks at the topic of eschatology. Dan is one of the leaders at Life Church Peterborough and also helps run Relational Missions Leadership Training Programme. Let's take a listen to the session. We're now going to talk about what is called eschatology, which we've actually talked about quite a lot already, just haven't necessarily always called it that. But eschatology means the study of the last things. Okay, For those of you who want a fancy word to teach your friends when you come back, eschatology, literally, study of the last things. And um, as with Revelation, it's sometimes thought of as a bit weird, sometimes thought of as a bit inaccessible, and, often as, and sometimes associated with people who do the whole charts, graphs thing. But here are a few reasons, very briefly, why I think studying eschatology, studying the end times, really, really matters. First of them is quite an obvious one. It's regularly emphasised in the Bible. And there's a whole load of different, um, different passages there. So Paul seemed really concerned, not just with the fact that Jesus was going to come back and that we'd spend eternity with him, but he seemed to be quite concerned in what order certain events would happen. And so I know what people mean when they say, I don't actually care what happens, I just want to be with Jesus for eternity. I know what they mean when they say that, but actually, the, however much of a ring of truth there is to that, that's not the way that the New Testament talks about the end times. The New Testament does want to give us a bit more than you're going to be with, with Jesus for eternity. So it doesn't really matter what that looks like or anything. The, the Bible does want to give us some more. So I think that's one reason it's emphasizing the Bible. It also helps us make sense of the fact that the Bible tells a story that's heading somewhere. Okay, the Bible is not just a, a list of doctrines or a list of things that you should believe. It's a story that is heading somewhere. And we need to study the end times or eschatology to understand where is it all heading. Another reason is the end times is very, very practical. Right? It's really important to emphasize that because it can be thought of as this theoretical abstract thing. But it does make a difference. What you believe about the future makes a, way, makes a difference to the way that you live. So you just, those of you who, might, who understand what I'm talking about here, that just asks people who are stockpiling non-perishable food for when Armageddon happens and are building rapture hatches so that they don't bang their head on the ceiling when Jesus returns and they get taken up. Now that's a, a, a silly example, but just to show you what you believe about something does make a difference to the way you live. And um, let's take a quote from the Bible to, make, to root it a bit more in, in something um, something solid. First Corinthians 15, probably the, I don't know, probably the most detailed chapter in the New Testament about um, the return of Jesus and the resurrection. Therefore, so in light of what I've just said for the last 57 verses, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul's conclusion at the end of one of the most dense theological chapters about the end times is, therefore, stand firm because your effort is not going to be in vain. So what we believe about what's going to happen makes a difference to the way we live. It also gives us hope in a world of injustice and uncertainty. If you know that there's a day coming where everything evil is going to be undone, that gives hope when the whole of your life is falling apart or where you're faced with stuff on the news that you just think, how on earth could this kind of thing go on? 
it helps in those moments to know that there's a day coming where God is going to rectify all wrongs and is going to judge injustice. It helps us deal with suffering and death. This is like for pastorally, if you're pastoring people, this is vital. And just for those of you who feel are, are pastors or feel called to go into church leadership, if we're not teaching the end times to our church, we end up with people who are unable to deal with suffering and death. And who, in, in the moment where tragedy strikes, they just don't know what to do with it. We need to teach people about the return of Jesus. We need to teach people about the future. We need to teach people about the fact that there's a day coming where everything sad is going to be undone. And it helps people to deal with life and tragedy in a godly way. It also helps people to deal with comfort and plenty in a godly way. Because we don't think, this is the only chance I have to actually live some kind of comfortable life. We think, no, actually, I can radically live a sacrificial life because I know that there's a day coming where there will be no sacrifice or pain involved anymore. So I think it's important. And so we're going to, in a sense, we've kind of covered a lot of the stuff already, but we're going we're gonna to look at the end times eschatology from a more kind of overall Bible point of view. And so in order to help with this, We've got a few different visual things going on. I would need um, a, couple of, a couple of people who are happy to come up and help me quickly with something. First come, first serve. Great, you both had your hands up first. So Phil and... To, oh, sorry, no, it was, it was the person behind you, actually. So what's your name, sorry? I'm very sorry. But thank you for bringing me a cup of tea in the break. That was very kind. And Phil, I think you had your hand up. Did you say Hannah? Is it? And Phil, great. So if you guys wouldn't mind... Let me just make sure I get this right around. If you could hold this timeline... So having said, like, having associated timelines with weirdness, um, we are now doing a timeline. I've, not, I've got my fingers stuck. Um, timelines are not weird in and of themselves. It's when they become speculative that they're a problem. Okay, so let's say this represents history. What I'm going to do is just run through how the Bible thinks of history. And so you could say you've broadly got three periods in the Bible. You've got the period where pre-fall, before everything goes pear-shaped. And if you're looking at history at that point... History is going somewhere. Okay? We can often think of the Garden of Eden and of creation as if that's it, it's the end product. Actually, the Bible thinks of creation and the Garden of Eden as good, but not yet complete. There is a mission that human beings have to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and eventually the whole of the world is going to be filled with the image of God in the form of human beings, and the whole of creation is going to be filled with the glory of God. So history is heading somewhere, even in the Garden of Eden. What happens, though, as a result of the fall is that history then ends up having a definite moment. If we could stretch that a bit so I can just... uh, If you read the rest of the Old Testament, the way it thinks of history is there is a problem that needs sorting out. We're not just heading somewhere and little by little the world's going to be filled with the glory of God. God needs to decisively act. And so what happens is as you read the Old Testament, so Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi... It often talks about this age and the age to come. Yeah, and actually that's often the way that Jesus talks in the Gospels as well. And so there's this decisive moment that is going to happen at some point from the Old Testament understanding, often called the day of the Lord. Anyone come across that expression before? Yeah, where God is going to intervene. He's going to come, he's going to judge the nations, everything is going to be restored. And those who who are truly followers of the true God are going, to, those are going to be raised from the dead. Creation is going to be restored. And we go from this age into the age to come, where people live for eternity and the whole of creation is restored. However, 
When you move into the New Testament and you get the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not that things change, but things get kind of zoomed in on in a slightly different way. So whereas in the Old Testament we were thinking we're waiting for the day of the Lord, what happens is in the New Testament, and here's where I'll have to pop behind here, this timeline gets split in two, and then, if you could just move slightly, gets overlapped. There we go, that's good. Yep, so if you could hold with that. This is a lot, it's taken a lot of skill to be able to hold it properly. So overlap, so you basically get, um, oh, let, let's do one on top, one on the bottom, it doesn't really matter which one. So you get the age to come, Jesus appears, dies, rises from the dead, the age to come has begun already. That is part of what the New Testament teaches. We are currently already living in the age to come. However, we are also still living in the present age. And so with the death and resurrection of Jesus, new creation has begun. But we are still living in the midst of old creation. And so we get this strange period that we are now currently living in, which the New Testament calls the end times. Okay, so when you hear about the end times, we're not just talking about the period immediately before Jesus' return. We're actually talking about the whole period between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the moment where Jesus returns, which will be, uh, maybe if we overlap slightly less, Jesus' death and resurrection, the church age, then Jesus returns, and at that point we enter fully into the age to come. So at the moment, we are all, those of us who are in Christ, are new creations, are inner self has been transformed and restored but our our outer self is still perishing and is basically I, i will get sick and die one day and that will happen to all of us if jesus doesn't return first but there's a day coming where the outer self will also be restored and will be completely freed from sin decay and death make sense so you've got so when we're talking about the end times what we're talking about is the period between jesus's resurrection and the return of jesus and then what happens is after Jesus returns, everything is recreated and made brand new. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Um, feel free to drop that now and, I, and to go back to your seats. If we give them a round of applause for their helpfulness. So it overlaps. And we need to be careful when we think about how we live our lives that we don't end up falling into one of two dangers. One danger is that we think we're basically still only in the present age. Basic, like nothing has really happened and we're just waiting for the return of Jesus. So we're not, we're not going to expect to really see any miracles or answers to prayer. We're waiting. All we're waiting for is the return of Jesus. And that's what, if you want a technical term that you can impress your friends with, that's what we sometimes call under-realized eschatology. So it's not realising that what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection has not just provided forgiveness for our sins. It's not just that God's left us off the hook. Actually, he has transformed us and recreated us brand new on the inside. But the other danger you can, um, you can end up going into is what we might call an over-realised eschatology, which is the idea that basically everything about the age to come has now, is now always going to happen. So we can expect that every single person that we pray for who is sick will always be healed. And there's no element of mystery whatsoever. And if this person isn't healed, it's always their lack of faith. That can be a bit more of an over-realised eschatology where we don't realise we, di- we do still live in a world where death happens. We do still live in a world where tragedy happens. We do still live in a world where there is sin and injustice. 
And so the Christian life, in a sense, is walking the balance between saying new creation has begun, but we're not fully yet there yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when we're talking about the end times, we're not just talking about the period just before the return of Jesus. We are also talking about um, the whole of the church age and then from the return of Jesus onwards. So no worries. <laughs> Let's quickly talk about uh, death and resurrection then, as if you could quickly talk about such things. I love the got a bit of a soundtrack going on there. <laughs> so. What happens when you die? <laughs> We're trying to... Uh, <laughs> trying to <turn> it <laughs> that's all right. I just, yeah, oh, actually, that's a good idea. Just mute, mute it between your legs. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about death and resurrection. So, people often speak of life after death, as if that's kind of the hope of, the hope of Christians. Actually, to make things sound a little bit more confusing, but I'll explain how it works... The New Testament doesn't actually talk that much about life after death. So if you read it carefully, there are a few places where it talks about what happens when you die. But actually, it's much more interested into what someone, a guy called N.T. Wright, has titled, and this is, this is very confusing, it's more interested in life after life after death. Apparently he wanted to write a book that had that as the title, but the editor thought that it was just a, a typo, so changed it to life after death. And he went, no, 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 no. So they ended up retitling it as Surprised by Hope because he didn't want to be misunderstood. But the Bible talks about death as a moment where our spiritual self, or what you might call our soul, is separated from our body. And so when we die, our soul goes to be, if we are believers in, in Christ, goes to be with Jesus. So Paul says... I wish that I were away from the body and with the Lord, which in other words means I would prefer to not be in this physical body at the moment, but to actually for my soul to be in the presence of Jesus. That's better than, than even be, than being in this body now. And so the Bible often uses words such as Sheol, if you read the Old Testament. Some translations will just have the grave. Um, it uses words such as Hades or paradise to refer to what we might call the intermediate state, the place where our souls go when we die. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, your soul, who you, I suppose you could say your true self, goes to be with Jesus when you die. But that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is not that we spend eternity in a disembodied state. Um, the goal of history is actually that we would spend eternity in a body, okay? So God didn't make a mistake when he made a physical world, okay? He didn't, he, so when the fall happened, God didn't go, ah, you know what, I should have just made them as ghosts and souls rather than bodies. I think that's the big problem. And unfortunately, a lot of, in a lot of Christian history, we've swallowed the idea that the body is fundamentally an evil thing and what we need is to escape from the body. The Bible says, no, 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 the hope for God's people is that one day, their bodies will be resurrected and their souls will be reunited with a perfect body. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so what is our hope as Christians? You could sum it up in one word, resurrection. Resurrection is what our hope is in terms of what happens to us. The Bible basically says what has happened to Jesus will happen to those who are followers of Jesus. So think about what happened to Jesus. He died. He said to the thief on the cross, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So his soul, Jesus' soul, would have gone to the realm of the dead for three days. And then after that, he was resurrected in his body 
in a perfect recreated body to eternal life. That is what is going to happen to us as well. So if we die before Jesus returns, our soul goes to be with Jesus. But our end hope is that when Jesus returns, we will be physically raised from the dead in a brand new body and that the whole of creation is going to be restored. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we could read a lot of just thinking, just aware of time. So we won't have time to read the whole of 1 Corinthians 15 as there are 58 verses in there and discussing it might take quite a a while. But um, what I'll do is I'll just quickly summarize how it works. And then we've got a bit of an activity about what order different events happen. And that will be a chance to explain um, some ins and outs of it. For if you want a chapter that talks about what is our individual hope as believers for the end times, then 1 Corinthians 15 is a really good place to go. And so what happens in this chapter, you can kind of follow through on on your notes, um, really, is in the first 11 verses, Paul talks about the fact that the gospel, the good news is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised to eternal life, and that he appeared to lots of people. So the first 11 verses is Paul saying, this is the gospel. And then afterwards, Paul starts addressing the fact that it seemed like a number of people in the church in Corinth didn't believe that one day they would be physically raised from the dead. They probably believed Jesus had, but they didn't believe that they would be. And for Paul, this was a serious enough issue that he decided to write 58 verses in order to respond to them and say, you guys really need to get your thinking straight. You will be physically raised from the dead one day. And the way he does that is to explain that Jesus's resurrection was not just a random isolated event. Jesus' resurrection is not just a way of God saying, and they all live happily ever after. See, it doesn't end so badly in the end. I know he died, but he came back to life, so it's okay, it's all happy. Jesus' resurrection is what's called the first fruits of everyone else. Now, are there is anyone here from a, maybe an agricultural background that has, has experienced the idea of first fruits before? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So the idea of first fruits is if you're a farmer, and I am not, so I will probably make many mistakes in describing this. Let's say, let's go for potatoes. Let's say you're planting potatoes and um, you start seeing some potatoes emerge. Okay. So early, early in the harvest season, you think, oh, great, we've got a few potatoes. What you do in that moment is you don't say, brilliant, let's harvest them all and let's have a great celebration. We've got 10 potatoes out of my massive field. Yes, what a brilliant harvest. You say, great, there are 10 potatoes so far. That means there's more to come. And Jesus' resurrection is like that. Jesus being raised from the dead is a demonstration and evidence of the fact that God is going to raise all of his people from the dead on the final day. And so Paul explains to them, he says, you, you know what? You actually can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead without also believing that you will be raised from the dead. Paul's saying, actually, it would be a contradiction to say, well, Jesus rose from the dead, but his people won't. Paul's saying the way Jesus' resurrection works is that it's the first installment of something greater. It's a bit like thunder and lightning. Jesus' resurrection is the thunder. Uh, sorry, this is the lightning. When you hear lightning, you know thunder's going to follow. When you see Jesus being raised from the dead, you know everyone who is a follower of Jesus will one day be raised from the dead. Paul then goes on to tell the Corinthians off a little bit because um, so they come from a background which is quite Greek. And uh, the Greeks, a lot of the Greeks didn't like the physical body. They thought the best thing was actually to not have a body because it's dirty, it's horrible. And you end up, I don't know, like you, you have to go to the toilet and it's just ah nasty. No, we don't want the body. We just want the, the soul to go off forever. And so Paul gives them a bit of a telling off and says, 
guys, you do realize that there are different kinds of bodies. You look around the world and you realize that there are, like, there are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, there are fish have different kinds of bodies to mammals, and mammals have different kinds of bodies to snakes and so on. In other words, he's saying that just because this is the kind of body you have now, with all of its limitations and all of its weakness and decay, you must not think that the body that you will have for eternity is, has those same problems. And he's explaining to them that when we die, he uses the image of sowing seeds and then stuff growing. So you sow a seed, you throw a seed into the ground, there's a sense in which it dies. It goes into the ground, it's buried. But what comes out of that seed? There's a plant, there's new life that comes out of it. And he uses that illustration to say, when you die, your body is sown into the ground because Christians and Jews would have buried their dead. So it, it worked really well as, a, uh, as an illustration. It's sown perishable, it's sown corrupt, it's sown in weakness, but it's going to be raised in power, in immortality and incorruptibility. And so he's addressing the fact that the only way they can conceive of a body is of a body being weak, of being frail, of being sick and ultimately dying. And he's saying, that's not the resurrection body you're going to have. The resurrection body you're going to have is going to be like Jesus's resurrection body. He said, and so what I'm now going to do is read the last, a, a few excerpts, the last little bits of 1 Corinthians to help us with this. So Paul says, so let's jump in at 1 Corinthians 15 verse um, 47. The first man, that's Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. So in other words, we are like Adam at the moment in terms of our bodies. Dust, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. That's why we say that at funerals. And as is the man of heaven, Jesus, so are those who are of heaven. But we have transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And that means that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So if you want to ask the question, what is my resurrection body going to be like? The Bible doesn't give us huge amounts of details, but the best place to go is, what did Jesus's resurrection body look like? Well, Jesus's resurrection body was recognizable, but at the same time, it was different. So people kind of, like, they, they were able to recognize him once they knew who it was, but at the same time, they were like, but you kind of look different. He wasn't subject to the same laws of physics. Like, he seemed to be able to just appear in the middle of a room, and you're, oh, my goodness, like, who opened the door? So, I don't know, will we be able to teleport in new creation? I mean, these are, to a certain extent, this is speculation, which is why you shouldn't build theology on it. But I just think, we are going to be like Jesus. We're going to have the same kind of body that Jesus has. Because his resurrection and our resurrection are actually part of the same harvest. It's just that his has happened halfway through history. Ours is going to happen at the end of history. And then Paul finishes this chapter by, uh, I think, giving some of the most amazing verses you could possibly have. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. By the way, that doesn't mean that we won't be physical. So flesh and blood here is a reference to human weakness and frailty. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. So euphemism for death. We, so we shall not, we won't, not everyone in the whole of history will die because some people will be alive when Jesus returns. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. In other words, those who are alive, who haven't died yet when Jesus returns, they don't go through death and then resurrection. They just get instantly transformed into a brand new body. Those who have died and who are followers of Jesus are raised from the dead in brand new bodies. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I love, have any of you come across the song by Simon Braden called Christus Victor? Yeah, there's kind of a, there's a bit of a bridge in there where he kind of uses a football chant to kind of taunt death. He's like, who are you? Who are you? Oh, death, where's your sting? And I think, like, regardless of what you think of that as a song, I think that's a great teaching tool for the way Paul's talking about death here. So like, there's a day coming where we, as followers of Jesus, are going to stand in resurrected, perfect, immortal bodies. And so to speak, we're going to look death in the face and say, who are you? Who are you? You're, you're, you are completely destroyed. You've been swallowed up in victory. And there's going to be, a, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be, I don't know, thousands of years into eternity, we'll be thinking, do you remember that thing called death? Like there was this thing where we kind of stopped, exi- stopped existing. And I, I just, I can't quite conceive of it. I think in the same way that we now find it impossible to think of a world without death, I wonder whether in eternity we'll find it possible to think of a world with death. That's how, that's how full God's victory over death is going to be. That's our hope. Our hope is that God is going to raise us, resurrect us from the dead, and we're going to spend eternity in a brand new creation with Jesus, which is awesome. Okay, let's do a a final little thing, and then we will uh, hand over to Andy, who's going to do a a few things at the end. I've got some envelopes for you guys, if you wouldn't mind. I don't know how many tables you've got, so you might need to... One, two, three, four, five... Okay, there are 12 of these. So um, I think each actual table can have one, and then the groups at the back, if you want to... So you can take the stuff out, and the idea is try and arrange the events in the order in which you think they happen. Try, if you can, try and do this without your notes, although you might not necessarily agree with the order in which I've put it in your notes anyway. And I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to see if you can arrange them in what you think is the correct order. Okay, please uh, step back from uh, your your cards or whatever form that takes. Now, there is some debate about the order of some of these. So don't, like, this is not, in some senses, some of these are like, yeah, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. For some of them, there is a bit of debate. But what I'm going to do is just kind of run through the order in which I would tend to read them and explain why and just make comments on them as I go. And it'd just be interesting to see whether you have agreed with me on the, the order. So um, I forgot, unfortunately, on your notes to, uh, to, to delete the, uh, the actual um, answers. So um, if, you had, if you'd just gone with your notes, you could have got the, the order in which I think they appear. Jesus' resurrection and ascension would be the first one. That is the first event of the end times, by the way, okay? So Jesus' resurrection and ascension, that's the beginning of the end times, okay? We've mentioned that. Pouring out of the Spirit would happen next, so day of Pentecost, the Spirit is not just, okay, and I know you've had this before, I've listened to a, a, some of the teaching that you've, uh, uh, that you, you've had, and I know, I think Andy Martin did spiritual gifts, and in his inimitable, um, inimitable style, um, probably told you, like, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not just so that we can shake and fall on the floor. 
That's not what the Holy, the Holy Spirit's purpose is. The Holy Spirit, in part, is the marker of a new age. Okay? And so us being empowered by the Spirit, which, yes, for a number of people, the way that we, they would respond to the Holy Spirit filling them, is often quite physical. I think you'd expect that. When you encounter the living God, I think that often does produce a physical response. But the Holy Spirit is, is much bigger than just being about our gathered meetings and giving spiritual gifts to people. The Holy Spirit being poured out is a marker of a new age. So we are living in the age of the Spirit being poured out. Whereas before, the, and under the Old Covenant, there were certain specific individuals who may have the Holy Spirit given to them for a particular task. We now all have the Holy Spirit having been given to us, and we can all expect to be filled with the Spirit when we ask God. Um, I would then put the Great Tribulation in. Now, this might surprise some of you. The reason I do that is the Great Tribulation, the expression comes from Revelation 7. And the way I would read it is that the Great Tribulation is not necessarily a reference just to a seven-year period before the return of Jesus where everyone, the church, suffer, but is actually a symbol for the whole of the church age from the perspective of suffering. Now, I think there is evidence of the fact that suffering for the gospel may well get worse before the return of Jesus. But I think the expression, the Great Tribulation, I think is something that starts pretty much from the get-go. Like As soon as the church explodes in Jerusalem, you start seeing persecution and suffering. So in, from one perspective, this is the age of the Spirit. From another slightly different perspective, this age is the Great Tribulation. We're living in a time where living passionately for the gospel of Jesus leads to persecution in varying degrees, depending on what time of history and what part of the world. The destruction of Jerusalem I would therefore place after that, because that's 70 AD. Now, I think that does count as a major event in the end times, because it's quite quite an earth-shattering event. So you've got the city of Jerusalem that has stood or has been really kind of the center of God's purposes for, the old, for much of the Old Covenant, is now destroyed as a result of their rebellion against Christ in that moment. And regardless of what you think about Israel as a country and the future of Israel and so on, and we won't have time to go into that, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was a, was a fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies. And it seems like, in light of his ministry, that it was seen as a moment of judgment upon Jerusalem because they had rejected their Messiah. Now, like I said, regardless of what you feel about the involvement of ethnic Israel and, and the future of Jerusalem and so on, we're not going to go into that because that would open a whole can of worms. 70 AD was a significant moment. Gospels proclaimed in the whole world. So Jesus says the gospel, the good news, will be proclaimed in the whole world. Then the end will come, which is there when we get this. So the second coming can only happen once the gospel has actually spread to all people groups or has at least been proclaimed in all people groups. Now, that doesn't mean that we've got some kind of timer that says, right, we've got two more people groups, which means, right, in the next five years we'll have reached them. So that means that the return of Jesus must happen immediately after. I think Jesus is just saying this gospel has to be proclaimed to all nations before the end actually comes. And you then get the second coming. Jesus is going to return physically and visibly. And in my reading of scripture, um, when Jesus returns, it's visible to everyone. So I, I don't personally read scripture and I don't, I, I don't see how, you, how it's that easy to do it, where there's this idea that Jesus returns secretly, first of all, to make the church escape and then later returns physically. I think when the New Testament talks about the return of Jesus, it talks about it being a cataclysmic, the whole of the world will be aware of it. Then I would 
put what's called the rapture. Okay, rapture comes again with a lot of baggage. So I think rapture, sometimes people immediately think of the whole kind of left behind series thing. But the rapture basically just means being taken up into the sky or into heaven. And so the, and the Bible does teach First Thessalonians 4 that when Christ returns, we are raised from the dead and we will meet him in the air. And I think that what then happens is that we then have the whole of creation restored and we go to be with Jesus for the whole of eternity. And so I've popped the millennium in there as a kind of like, well, you kind of have to make up your mind a little bit what you think the answer to where the, when the millennium happens is. So if you're a premillennialist, then you are very likely going to put, um, you may put the millennium between the second coming and the rapture. Or you may decide, oh no, okay, you've got second coming rapture, then millennium. Or you may decide, well, I'm going to put the millennium right after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus because I think the whole church ages. So that's one of those debatable ones. But whatever the case, Jesus is going to return bodily. He is going to raise his people from the dead. We are going to meet him in the air and we're going to spend eternity with him. And then after that comes final judgment where God is going to bring justice and everyone is going to face final judgment. Everyone will stand before God. We're given account for the way that they've lived their lives. And those who are in Christ will be saved. They will be kept for eternity in, with God. And we then enter into what theologians sometimes call the eternal state, what more popularly people might say heaven what i think maybe the most helpful way of putting it is the the renewal of creation because i think the bible talks about creation being restored not so much talking about spending the whole of eternity in heaven what we're expecting is that god is going to recreate the universe and is going to recreate the universe in such a way that sin and death can never enter again it just can't happen okay so do you remember when we talked about we talked about like kind of the timeline when we were in, in Eden just after creation. There was this idea that as you go through time, the, the earth would gradually be filled with image bearers of God and would, the whole world would be filled with the glory of God. New creation is not a return back to Eden. It's a return back to what Eden would have become if humanity had not failed. It's a return back to what Eden would have been transformed into, what the whole world would have become if Adam had not failed. And the reason that we can have a return to what Eden would have become is because there was a second Adam. And the second Adam didn't capitulate to the serpent. He didn't give in. The second Adam crushed the head of the serpent. And so when we enter into new creation, we are entering into a world that can never be infected by sin that can never be tainted by sin, that can never have evil enter it, that can never have impurity enter it, that can never have any sadness enter it. See? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. I think there's going to be a lot of crying in, in new creation. But there's one kind of crying that never will exist, and that's the crying of despair and of sadness. There's going to be a heck of a lot of tears of joy, though. And I just find it interesting, I think John Piper made this observation, he said, if you take the extremes of human emotion, they're expressed in tears. It's interesting, isn't it? You, extreme sadness, you cry. Extreme joy, you cry. Somewhere in the middle, you laugh and you rejoice. There's something where I, when it says there'll be no tears, I don't think that means we'll never cry. I think it means there'll be no sadness. There'll be nothing that can make us cry for despair. There's nothing that's going to cause us to go, oh, I just wish I lived in a world that was better. I just wish I lived in a world that didn't have death or cancer or, um, or things that just 
rob me of joy, we will never be robbed of joy for the whole of eternity because God is seated on the throne and will say, I am making all things new. And that's what we have to look forward to. And uh, for the sake of time, I will not go too much into... Um, how much time have I got? Five minutes, yeah. Okay, so five minutes. Let me just very quickly. And actually, in a sense, the fact that I've only got five minutes makes this slightly easier and not as horrible because it would be wrong to talk about eschatology and the end times and not talk about hell. Um, and so I am literally just going to run through this and not take any questions because um, partly it's it's very uncomfortable, but also I think sometimes it's just helpful to just be like, right, okay, so let's sober-mindedly talk about this. Um, because hell or eternal destruction or eternal damnation, whatever you want to call it, is something the Bible does talk about. And uh, very often it uses the image, of, uh, the, the word in the New Testament is Gehenna in Greek, which is a reference to a valley near Jerusalem where some people of Judah committed the, just the grossest forms of idolatry, like sacrificing their children as burnt offerings. And so Jesus particularly is the, uses the word Gehenna a lot to refer to eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. And um, he's using it because it conjures up this imagery of continual fire, continual burning. And uh, the doctrine of hell, it's, it's one of the hardest doctrines, um, I think, for the Western church to accept. Now, I don't think that's the case in the whole of the world because, again, culture shapes the way that we think. And in certain parts of the world, the doctrine of hell would be the easiest thing to believe. The doctrine of the grace of God would be the hardest thing to believe. As I think over here, we perhaps take God's grace and forgiveness for granted. Well, of course he should forgive me. He's God. Whereas I think a lot of parts of the world, they say, well, of course he should send people to hell. Why on earth would he forgive anyone? That's, uh, so I think for the Western church, it's a very difficult doctrine. I think a couple of reasons. One of it is it is hard. It is a difficult doctrine. It's emotionally difficult. And I don't think I can emotionally make sense of it. I, I, Intellectually, I can, but I think emotionally that it's, it's something I find very difficult to deal with. But another reason is I think it's sometimes caricatured as a place where God basically gets kicks out of torturing people for eternity. And I think that, that is an unhelpful representation. It's not a place where God is delighting in the fact that he's causing pain for the whole of eternity. But hell is necessary for God to be just and for new creation to be safe from evil. So I think we referred to that. Actually, hell, in part, is, prote- is protecting new creation from evil because evil is contained within hell. And um, whatever your specific clue conclusions are about the, the nature of hell, I think we need to ensure that we, are, we stand on the following. First of all, hell is where justice is done. Okay? So it involves punishment, but it's just punishment. And this, for me, has got to be my bedrock. I, emotionally, the idea of someone, because uh, I, would, I would tend to accept what we might call eternal conscious torment, the idea that it's not, you don't just get annihilated, but that there's something that goes on for eternity. And so for me to make sense of that, intuitively and emotionally, that feels unfair to me. And so my bedrock has to be that on that final day, I'm not going to be standing there when God pronounces judgment over people and saying, that wasn't, that wasn't fair. That wasn't wrong. On that day, everyone's going to say, that was just. And I can't emotionally understand that now, but that has to be my bedrock. Otherwise, I will end up either distorting the Bible to fit my preferences or just absolute despair that this could even be possible. It, will, it is God rendering to each according to his work. So it's not a punishment that's disproportionate to the crime. And so that, for me, has to be my bedrock when I'm thinking about hell. Otherwise, 
I'll go dodgy in a number of areas. Another thing is that hell rids God's creation from evil. Okay? Gehenna, the place of um, that hell is kind of where the imagery of hell comes from, is outside of Jerusalem. Hell is outside of the city of God's new creation. And so it's the place where evil is contained and is not allowed out. So in that sense, hell is a place of where new creation is protected from evil. Hell is also where evil is destroyed. Okay? So although I've said that I believe in eternal torment, the, the image of fire, an unquenchable fire, is probably mainly to do with the fact that evil is destroyed rather than suffering per se. I think you get from other texts the idea that there's going to be torment or so on, but I think fire is often about the idea that evil is being dealt with. It's being destroyed. Hell is permanent. So if you go for the traditional eternal conscious torment view, the actual punishment is ongoing. If, um, so there's another view, which is the annihilationist view, which I don't hold and I don't think most evangelicals will hold, but there are a handful of, of, of evangelicals who have held to that, people like John Stott. They would say that the destruction is eternal. In other words, the effect of hell is eternal. Whatever the case, I don't think you can get out of the fact that it's eternal. And I would uh, more towards it being consciously eternal than it being just eternal in its consequences. But whatever the case, I think you go on to very dodgy territory if you start saying, well, it's basically just like... At the end of the day, everyone gets saved. I think that does a huge disservice to our evangelism, if that's the way we think about <coughs> hell. And hell is devoid of the goodness creation. It's referred to as the outer darkness. So that's sobering, but I think it would be wrong to do a day on eschatology without referring to that. And so for the sake of time, but also for the sake of um, it would not be the, the, a nice thing to end on, Let's just relift our eyes to new creation. I'm going to reread Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4 again, just to remind us that our destiny is not to escape from earth. Our destiny is that heaven, God's dwelling place, is going to come down to earth. And so to reread the verses we read out earlier, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. By the way, that doesn't mean there's no surfing or beaches. Sea represents separation and turmoil. There's no separation. There's no turmoil. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What an amazing hope. What an amazing future. I think in some senses, new creation is going to look a lot more like this world than we might think it does. Because I think the emphasis of scripture is on creation being restored rather than it just... There are passages that talk about kind of it being passed away and recreated. A lot of passages talk about it being restored. I think, take this world, take all of the good stuff in this world, get rid of all of the evil, all of the stuff that's caused by sin and suffering. Imagine living in that kind of world. And now imagine living in that kind of world where you are living in the constant presence of the life, hope-giving God. That's what awaits us for the whole of eternity. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. And it's worth laying our lives down in the present to serve Christ because we know that we are going to spend eternity with him. And I think we need to make sure that that is something that's in our minds, that's in our preaching, that's constantly in the way that we think. So, Father, we thank you.
for this amazing news that the gospel is not just about the present life of knowing you as glorious and amazing as that is, but it's about a, a recreation of the universe to what you had designed it to always become. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to live in line with that. You'd help us to live lives that are radical because we know there's a day coming where every investment we've made in eternity will be repaid to us. And Father, I pray you'd help us to to delight in the truth of the future that you have for us and to live and to proclaim the gospel in light of that future, Lord God. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.